Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, A Brief History of the Supreme Court of the United States, Part 1, The Date, July 2022, and my name is Belisarius Avis. Deciding not to decide, of course, is among the most important things done by the Supreme Court. It takes a lot of doing, but it can be done. Thurgood Marshall. I have no respect for the passion of equality, which seems to me merely idealizing envy. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. An unlimited power to tax involves necessarily a power to destroy, because there is a limit beyond which no institution and no property can bear taxation. John Marshall. My view is regardless of whether you think prohibiting abortion is good or whether you think prohibiting abortion is bad, regardless of how you come out on that, my only point is the Constitution does not say anything about it. It leaves it up to democratic choice. And if I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Justice Antonin Scalia In a 1983 thriller starring Michael Douglas entitled The Star Chamber, a secret society of judges hires assassins to snuff out criminals who escape courtroom justice to deal with their frustration with a legal system that has gone haywire. Let's hope some of the fringier elements of the left do not get any bright ideas. But the real Star Chamber originated as an English institution of the same name that tried people too powerful to be brought before the ordinary common law courts. You see, the fear was corruption. They felt that they needed an elevated court system to try the rich and powerful. From the Middle Ages, the Star Chamber consisted of a committee of the English King's Council. It was reorganized in 1487 under King Henry VII so that it was composed of four high state officers that included a bishop, a temporal lord of the council, and two justices of the Court of Westminster. Henry VIII's Chancellor and Cardinal Thomas Wolsey encouraged plaintiffs to appeal first to the Star Chamber before filing in one of the ordinary courts. Also in Henry VIII's reign, Thomas More was tried for treason in a fashion we would have found problematic. More's trial opened in Westminster Hall on July 1st, 1535. Although a jury of 12 men would have the final say, More had to understand that a verdict of guilty was inevitable. Were the jury to have declared otherwise, they might have faced imprisonment themselves. In this particular case, the executive branch of the British government at the time, in really kind of in the person of King Henry VIII, the legislative branch, which would have been Parliament, and the judicial were practically combined. Thomas Cromwell, the King's secretary and dominator of the Parliament, the legislative branch, helped conduct the trial. The Duke of Norfolk presided. This century-old practice of combining executive and legislative power with judicial did not fundamentally cease until the late 1800s in Britain, a century after the American Constitution came into being. 
Until the end of the 19th century, judges could be elected as members of parliament. And in some rare cases, judges such as the Lord Chief Justice would also serve as members of the cabinet and thus be members of the government and executive itself. It was with this in mind that the Constitution features Article 3. Article 1 covered the legislator and Article 2 the executive branch. This order was not in random, but that in which the founders thought were the most important of institutions. Because the legislative was seen as the most representative of the people, they were placed first in the Constitution. But, and this is critical, it does not mean that any branch is subordinate to another. And now I'm going to quote, this is Article 3 of the Constitution of the United States. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Now, one of the key documents defending not just the Constitution itself, but specifically addressing Article 3 of the Constitution was written by Alexander Hamilton and is known as Federalist Number 78. This is one in the long line of the Federalist Papers. And like all of them, it was published under the pseudonym Publius. Titled The Judiciary Department, Federalist Number 78 was published on May 28, 1788, and first appeared in a newspaper on June 14th of the same year. It was written to explicate and justify the structure of the judiciary under the proposed Constitution of the United States. It is the first of six essays by Hamilton on this issue. In particular, it addresses concerns by the Anti-Federalists, those opposed to too much power vested in the federal government, over the scope and power of the federal judiciary, which would have comprised unelected, politically insulated judges that would be appointed for life. One of the core tenets of the Constitution is the separation of powers, so that no branch garners enough authority to subjugate the other two. This is what Hamilton had in mind. If it is said that the legislative body is themselves the constitutional judges of their own powers, and the construction they put upon them is conclusive upon the other departments, it may be answered that this cannot be the natural presumption, where it is not to be collected from any particular provisions in the Constitution. It is not otherwise to be supposed that the Constitution could intend to enable the people's representatives to substitute their will for that of their constituents. It is far more rational to suppose that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and the legislature in order, among other things, to keep the latter within limits assigned to their authority. Yet, there was an obvious concern, because since the judiciary did not control the purse, as did Congress, nor the sword, the president's commander-in-chief, therefore that sword would be seen to be in the executive, 
There was a concern that the judiciary would be relegated to a not-so-co-equal status, but rather as a subordinate to the first two. Hamilton answers this as such. It equally approves that though individual oppression may now and then proceed from the courts of justice, the general liberty of the people can never be endangered from that quarter. I mean, so long as the judiciary remains truly distinct from both the legislature and the executive. I agree that there is no liberty if the power of judging is not separated from the legislative and executive powers. Here we will come to full stop with our history lesson and examine just what Hamilton feared, what has come to pass, and what has most recently been undone. Without an act of Congress, because remember, the Congress is the maker of laws. It's the role of the Supreme Court to interpret those laws. But what happens when there is no law to interpret at all? So without an act of Congress, the Supreme Court in 1973, in deciding the case of Roe v. Wade, decided to, they themselves, make a law in the case of legalizing nationwide abortion. Regardless of pro-life or pro-choice arguments, this is precisely what Hamilton was alluding to. Simply put, it is not the role or the power of the Supreme Court to do what was done in Roe. And for that matter, when John Roberts changed the text of Obamacare, making it into a tax, the Supreme Court, or as we will refer to it often as SCOTUS, again assumed a power not directed. This is the core of the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, which has now overturned Roe v. Wade. And we will explore all of this further in future podcasts. So let's go back to history. As Hamilton notes, Federalist Number 78 views Supreme Court justices as an embodiment of the Constitution, the last group to protect the foundation of laws set up in the Constitution and later laws enacted by Congress. This coincides with the view above that the judicial branch is a branch of judgment. The interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. A constitution is, in fact, and must be regarded by the judges as fundamental law. It therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning and the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. And there are those words, proceeding from the legislative body. But in the case of Roe, there was no thing proceeding from the legislative body, no law to judge. Now, there are those who think of the Constitution as an outdated document. In a July 4th piece, note July 4th, by Washington Post writer Paul Waldman, the author declared, this July 4th, let's declare our independence from the founding fathers. Arguably the most prominent of these early skeptics, uh, those wanting that independence from the founding fathers and particularly of the Constitution itself, the first of our presidents was Woodrow Wilson to question the Constitution fundamentally. First, let's look at a little bit of the historical record of this governing document. Our republic is now nearly 300 years old and counting with but a single interlude around the Civil War showing a rupture, a fundamental rupture within our nation, nearly 300 
hundred years. We have had the number one economy since the 1870s, something absolutely unprecedented. Hundreds of millions were raised out of poverty during that period. We have survived the aforementioned civil war. We have survived depressions, plagues, world wars. Yep, let's get rid of the Constitution. Why? Because Congress and state legislators are now being asked to do their jobs. And liberals and progressives are now being asked to persuade not just five justices, but the entire people of the United States. That's why they want to rip it up. Now, another key facet established within the Constitution is justices are nominated by the president, they are confirmed by the Senate, and they hold their offices under lifetime tenure. Now, since justices do not have to run or campaign for re-election, they are thought to be insulated from political pressure when deciding cases. And ideally, that would be the goal. I think we know the real truth of it. Of course they're not. Over the past 20 years, we have seen Chief Justice John Roberts make decisions, especially on that of Obamacare, that have little to do with the actual law and much to do with the image and optics of the Supreme Court itself. Nevertheless, it is still not meant necessarily to be representative of the people. What is, God forbid, that body, which is elected every two years, the House of Representatives, and Senate offices, elected every six years, and then finally, the single office within the executive of the president and vice president, obviously every four years. So that is supposed to be the representative side of it. The Supreme Court is not, because... They are supposed to be above the feelings, the passions, and even, yes, the majorities of any particular day. Justices may remain in office until they resign, pass away, or are impeached and convicted by Congress. Now, one of the other movements that we've been seeing a lot of is, let's put an age limitation upon the Supreme Court. Okay, what is that number specifically? Does that apply to the presidency? given the fact that we have a very old president right now set to achieve the age of 80. Somebody will be 86, assuming if he wins a second term, have good works not been done by justices over the age of whatever. The reason that you did not want to put an age stipulation on a judge is because then it would immediately start to affect their decision-making as they reach the age of retirement. There is a clear line between the maintenance of the Constitution and that concept of a living Constitution, so dearly held by Wilson and other Wilsonians. But of course, the Constitution can be amended. It has happened over 27 times. And after the Bill of Rights, which contains the original 10 amendments, the first, the 11th Amendment, actually dealt specifically with the judicial branch of the United States. And here it is. The judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. What this means is that the U.S. courts can't hear cases and make decisions against a state if the state is sued by a citizen who lives in another state or by a person who lives in another country. 
Why is this here? Because those anti-federalists who generally oppose the Constitution feared that such a provision would allow individuals to sue states in federal court. Therefore, to keep again those anti-federalists on board, you get the 11th Amendment. Now in George Will's magisterial opus, The Conservative Sensibility, he lays out the necessary friction within a republic such as ours. The essential drama of democracy derives from the inherent tension between the natural rights of the individual and the constructed right of the community to make such laws as the majority deems necessary and proper. For Will, our two founding documents stood in for these concepts. The Declaration states our natural rights and the constitution of how to govern a group of individuals living not in the traditional monarchy, but something new, a continental republic. Now, there were undoubtedly great men at the heart of these documents. Thomas Jefferson, who crafted the vision. James Madison, who built the machinery to enable its inception. And Alexander Hamilton, to make certain that that machine would be built and that it would be made to work. But even these figures stand in awe of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Will states, without George Washington, there would have been no country. Without Lincoln, a shattered nation would never have been reconnected with the founders' premises. But to this august list, Will adds a figure far less known than any of the ones previously mentioned. Quote, In his 34 years as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, John Marshall established constitutional reasoning at the core of American governance. In Will's view, Marshall established judicial review and made the judicial branch important to the supervision of democracy itself. One of Marshall's key achievements was Marbury versus Madison. Now, after President John Adams lost the 1800 election, but before he left office, he appointed Marbury as a justice of the peace and signed his commission. However, soon thereafter, Thomas Jefferson became president and refused to allow Secretary of State James Madison to deliver the commission to Marbury. So Marbury sued Madison in the Supreme Court to get his commission via a writ of mandamus, an order from a court to an inferior government official ordering the government official to properly fulfill their official duties or correct an abuse of discretion. Under Justice John Marshall, the court specifically held that the provision in the 1789 Act granting the Supreme Court the power to issue a writ of mandamus was unconstitutional. More importantly, however, Marshall's opinions established that the Supreme Court has the authority under the Supremacy Clause and Article 3 of the Constitution to review legislative or executive acts and find them unconstitutional, i.e. the power of judicial review. As was stated by Marshall, the authority given to the Supreme Court by the act of establishing the judicial system of the United States to issue writs of mandamus to public officers appears not warranted by the Constitution. The judicial department emphatically must say, what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret the rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the court must decide on each operation. 
If courts are to regard the Constitution and the Constitution superior to any ordinary act of the legislature, the Constitution and not such ordinary act must govern the case to which they both apply. This is the part many jurists like to cite. They like to cite the superiority of the Supreme Court, again, forgetting the fact that the Supreme Court is only ruling on pre-existing laws, not making them. But here's another piece where Marshall places limits on judicial authority. It is the essential criterion of the appellate jurisdiction that it revises and corrects the proceeding in a cause already instituted and does not create the cause. Again, what Marshall is saying is is very clear here. The Supreme Court can rule on laws, even declaring them unconstitutional, but they cannot create the law in and of itself. Though the Supreme Court justices are nominated by the sitting president and approved by the Senate, Marbury established SCOTUS as an actual co-equal branch of government, not the servant of the other two. This fulfilled the vision of Federal 78, but to be clear, Marsh was not saying that the court could make laws, just that it could rule on laws passed by the other branches, finding them unconstitutional. As Hamilton adds in Federalist 78, the complete independence of the courts of justice is peculiarly essential in a limited constitution. By a limited constitution, I understand one which contains certain specified exceptions to the legislative authority, such, for instance, as that it shall pass no bills of attainder, no ex post facto laws, and the like. Limitations of this kind can be preserved in practice no other way than through the medium of courts of justice, whose duty it must be to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void. Without this, all of the reservations of particular rights or privilege would amount to nothing. One of the things most intentionally misconstrued by progressives is the meaning behind Supreme Court decisions. Most are about the actual case before them, but some set precedents and rules for the lower courts. The importance of the ruling is who gets to decide where and when abortions are legal. As much as eco-warriors would like to imply that EPA versus West Virginia, a recent law where the Supreme Court knocked down the power of the EPA to set specific pricing, the real issue is the power of unelected federal agencies in the executive versus the lawmaking ability of the Congress. Historically, We then come to two decisions that progressives have much misinterpreted. In the first case, we look at McCullough versus Maryland, 1819, where the issue was whether Congress could establish a national bank, and if so, can a state tax this bank? The result was that the court held that Congress had implied powers to establish a national bank under the Necessary and Proper Clause of the U.S. Constitution. However, the court also determined that the United States laws trump state laws, and consequently a state could not tax the national bank. The importance of this? McCullough decision established two essential principles for constitutional law that continue today, implied powers and federal supremacy. The next law, kind of of a piece with McCullough, was Gibbons versus Ogden, 
1824, in which can states pass laws that challenge the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. The court held that it is the federal government's role to regulate commerce and that state governments cannot develop their own commercial regulating laws or apparatus. Further, the court created an expansive definition for commerce, reasoning that the term encompassed more than just the selling and buying. In this case, the court determined that regulating water navigation was, in fact, an act that regulated commerce. The impact of Gibbons is still felt today as it gives the federal government a much broader base to regulate economic transactions. Now, after a century of the Federal Reserve, Wilson's progressivism, FDR's New Deal, LBJ's Great Society, Nixon's EBA, George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind, and Obama's Affordable Care Act, the concept of states reserving commercial power for themselves almost seems quaint, if not anachronistic, to a progressive. But our republic is the United States of America, and that will entail that certain powers have been accrued to the federal government and that such laws, such as Obamacare, can trump state laws. Yet, we are not, and this is really important, we are not united America. Article 10 of the Bill of Rights is clear. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. My problem with McCullough and Gibbons is, is that it's at the president that all state laws are to be set aside, that all state laws are to be void. The problem with that is, is that in voting for state laws, it brings democracy closer to that of the people. It is much easier to choose to live in a specific state with its own unique laws as opposed to other states than it is to try to lobby or influence an already too large and too bloated federal government. Much easier to work in Madison, in Springfield, in Sacramento, or in Austin than it is to work in Washington, D.C. And by work, I mean influencing the laws that govern our lives. Therefore, it is as my piece on federalism in and of itself something somewhat curbed by McCullough and Gibbons, that were necessary. And again, think about Article 10, not spelled out specifically, it is better to have state laws. And that is what, within the Dobbs decision, was the fundamental intent, to have each state decide what their laws are going to be in regard to the vexing question of abortion. And now we come to one of the most misunderstood at least by today's progressive standards, laws passed by the Supreme Court. Not only was this law racist in a time when that concept was finally being recognized, but it was also unconstitutional, as our time and our court would know. And that law is Dred Scott v. Sanford. In this pre-Civil War case, the question was whether Congress had the constitutional power to prohibit slavery in free territories. A second question was whether the Constitution gave African Americans the right to sue in federal court. The 1857 court answered no on both accounts. Congress could not prohibit slavery in territories, and African Americans had no right to sue in federal court. 
In reaching these answers, the court, interpreting the Constitution as it existed before the Civil War amendments, specifically 13, 14, and 15, had abolished slavery. The conclusion? That people of African descent had none of the rights of citizens. The court further reasoned that slaves were property and therefore could not be taken from their owners without due process. Obviously, the Dred Scott case became a central issue in the debate surrounding the expansion of slavery and further fueled the flames leading to the Civil War. The obvious aspect about Dred Scott was, well, the obvious racism of it, but there was something also incredibly important about those who speak of a living constitution or that of a Supreme Court that can make up laws or declare this or that a right. If they really like that kind of Supreme Court, Dred Scott is the ruling for them. Though liberals might shriek at the implication, this is what an unfettered court looks like. Dan McLaughlin, writing for the National Review, notes, The competition for the most unhinged and least accurate criticisms of Dobbs and the rest of this month's Supreme Court decisions have been fierce amongst progressive commentators. But Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect just might be the early leader in the clubhouse with a column entitled Samuel Alito, the 21st Century Roger Taney. Taney, of course, is the Chief Justice appointed by Andrew Jackson. Taney is best known for his opinion in Dred Scott v. Sanford, and Meyerson would like to compare Dobbs with Dred Scott. Meyerson begins, He was confident that his sweeping opinion, backed by the majority of his Supreme Court colleagues, would decide the nation's most divisive issue once and for all, even though his position was so extreme, it lacked the support of a bulk of the American citizenry. Yet, unlike Dred Scott, Dobbs did no such thing. In fact, it did the exact opposite. Taney sought to impose a permanent settlement of two single issues in one stroke. One was lawsuits in federal court by slaves or former slaves seeking a declaration of their freedom on various grounds. In Dred Scott's case, the argument was that he had been taken to reside in a federal territory that did not recognize slavery and was therefore Scott became a free man once his residence was more than transitory. Taney, after a highly flawed review of the founding era history, concluded that a black man could never be a citizen of any state within the meaning of Article 3 and therefore could never file suit in a federal court, at least not without invoking a basis for suit under federal law. The other issue that Taney unilaterally destroyed was the power of Congress to ban slavery in the territories. Taney, invoking and effectively inventing the concept of substantive due process, held that Congress lacked the power to prevent a slaveholder from bringing his property wherever he wanted. The ruling purported to invalidate the Missouri Compromise of 1820. It was touted by the aging Pennsylvania-born Democrat in the White House, James Buchanan, as a kind of super precedent settling the question of slavery in the territories. It was also widely seen as a prelude to a constitutional decision forcing every state to allow slaves to be brought into their territory. Again, what McLaughlin is saying here is is that Taney was making up rights or banning them as he saw fit. Writer Ed Whalen adds, In 1857, Chief Justice Taney's ruling in Dred Scott 
marks the Supreme Court's first use of the modern liberal judicial activist's favorite tool, substantive due process, to invalidate a statute. In striking down the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which prohibited slavery in the northern portion of the Louisiana territories, Taney nakedly asserts an act of Congress which deprives a citizen of the United States of his liberty and property merely because he came himself or brought his property into a particular territory of the United States and who had committed no offense against the laws could hardly be dignified with the name due process of law. The dissenters in Dred Scott invoke and properly apply the originalist principles that liberal judicial activists regard as abhorrent. As Justice Curtis declares rhetorically in exposing Taney's deviation from originalist principles, if a prohibition of slavery in a territory in 1820 violated the principle of due process, the Ordinance of 1787 also violated it. Further, when a strict interpretation of the Constitution, according to the fixed rules which govern the interpretation of laws, is abandoned and the theoretical opinions of individuals are allowed to control its meaning, we no longer have a Constitution. We are under the government of individual men who for the time being have the power to declare what the Constitution is according to their own views of what it ought to mean, which is precisely what happened in 1973. Now we will now turn from constitutional law to that brilliant societal commentator, SpongeBob SquarePants. Many years ago, when my son was around eight, we discovered the brilliance of this cartoon creature. It harkened me back to my childhood days watching Frizz Freeling and Chuck Jones' Looney Tunes. SpongeBob could play on several levels like those genius cartoons. But I am not kidding myself. He screams, gets hit by anchors, and nearly drowns in his role of a lifeguard. Why would an undersea creature need lifeguards? I don't know. But it was still fun. One episode was entitled opposite day. This is wherein Spongebob's uptight and put-upon next-door neighbor Squidward tells Spongebob and his best friend Patrick that it is opposite day. You see, Squidward was concerned about a real estate deal and was thinking that the crazy Spongebob might foul it all up. So by acting opposite, Spongebob would be a sober, reliable neighbor than his normal goofy self. Well, this was at least Squidward's vision. Everything goes fine until Spongebob and Patrick decide to take the holiday to the next level. A now grumpy and destructive Spongebob ends up ruining the real estate deal. Now, if Spongebob had stayed his usual goofy self, the real estate deal might have gone through, but Squidward couldn't help himself. So why would I take the mortally serious decisions made by the Supreme Court and lower them to the level of an animated Nicktoons feature? This all seems rather silly until one realizes this is happening in our country today. Arguments on the level of a child's cartoon. Progressives extol great concern over crime when it involves mass shooters while also wishing to defund police officers who would be amongst those best positioned to prevent crime. They are also quite selective about those they target with heavy emphasis on those trying to obtain firearms legally as opposed to those, such as many shooters in, say, Chicago, doing so illegally. The opposite day theme continues. They talk of climate change Armageddon at fancy retreats to which they arrive 
on fossil fuel-driven personal jets. They worry about inflation and yet wish to alleviate the serious issue by printing and spending more money on various boondoggles and that are really sops to their base. Again, what they say is in direct opposite to what they are actually trying to do. And the thinking and reasoning behind their argumentation seems much more akin to something that one would see in a SpongeBob SquarePants cartoon than one would actually see or read in, let's say, the Federalist Papers or what Alito actually wrote. It is as if they say one thing and their actions are the exact opposite. And on Dobbs, they decry that the Supreme Court took away a supposed right, calling the Supreme Court illegitimate, that an earlier Supreme Court put into place. And they called for democracy when Dobbs enabled the voters, the voters, to decide abortion rights, which sure sounds like democracy to me. Thank you for listening to this latest conservative historian podcast. Check out all our podcasts up and down our Buzzsprout site. Thank you.